Like Nosferatu's theme, the production always seemed to be teetering on the brink between tyranny and chaos. Except before the camera, which was sacred territory. There, the atmosphere became intensely pure and intimate, a phenomenon I never really perceived or appreciated until I experienced it myself. And this is a recollection of Beverly Walker of her time in front of and behind a camera during the filming of Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht. Hello everyone and welcome back to the spooky Batfield Theater of the Golden Silent Films podcast as we fight for our silent lives against the most terrifying advancement in film. And that would be sound. This spooktacular Halloween season, as always, brings with it frights and bites, so our crack scare crew have stepped up and put together a deliciously spine-chilling and blood-curdling descent into talking vampires. Before we sink our teeth into the bloody, plague-fueled world of Werner Herzog's Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, do follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for all of you boils and ghouls on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence and the number one, at Golden Silence 1, or just search for Golden Silence cast and we will be there. And these sites and screen names will be in the episode description in case you were interested in checking us out, and we would love to have you on board. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode information, and other hair-raising, silent movie-related materials. And, like this film, you'll get cute cats as well. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do leave a review, a rating, or both. All those ratings and reviews help a lot. Let all of your wildest review-leaving dreams come true and help our little show grow. Whether giving us more exposure in the vast world of podcasts or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and endeavor to bring you the best and scariest episodes possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. Whilst our input can be terrifyingly inconsistent, if you are subscribed, you will never be scared to miss an episode and the moment we release new content, it will be downloaded right to your ears via your listening device of choice. And we have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe and we don't want you to miss a second. So, well, this episode, this is the third episode of our ongoing series of spotlights covering all things Nosferatu and Nosferatu adjacent. In earlier episodes, we covered the estate of Bram Stoker vs. Nosferatu, followed by a deep dive into the original classic Nosferatu directed by Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. For our Werner Herzog helm Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht adventure, we were able to watch this great flick on Blu-ray. If you want to check it out for yourself, it is available in a lot of places, including Amazon, at very reasonable prices, and it is totally worth every penny you spend. As for the main feature itself, it comes with the German language audio with English subtitles and an English language audio track. As we discuss the film, you'll learn why it has these two language tracks and which one Werner Herzog himself prefers. In addition to those, there is also a commentary track with the directorial legend himself, Werner Herzog. As far as the other special features, there is a vintage making of documentary and various theatrical trailers. Overall, it's a really cool package that takes the viewer a little deeper in their understanding of this picture. 
I highly recommend it and feel everyone out there would do well to pick it up. So just a little foreshadowing, this is going to be an info-packed episode, so let's start with some life stories of the folks behind and in front of the camera. We're going to start with director Werner Herzog. So I knew very little about Herzog going into this film. The only other Herzog film I had ever seen was his 2005 documentary, Grizzly Man. This was an emotional and heartbreaking documentary, so I knew the German director had a way with committing emotion to film and that he was skilled at documentaries. Outside of that, and a handful of on-camera appearances, my Werner Herzog slate was relatively clean. Now, Herzog was born on September 5th, 1942 in Munich, Germany. He was the second son of Elizabeth and Dietrich Herzog. His mother fled Munich and with her child only a few weeks old in an effort to avoid Allied bombings. They would settle in a Bavarian town near the Austrian border. Here he would grow up under difficult circumstances in post-war Germany. His father didn't come back from the war until 1947, with his parents separating soon after. Herzog experienced his first film at the age of 11. The family moved back to Munich a year later when he was 12. It was in school there that he would start to dream of becoming a film director. In his early teens, he started working at a steel factory to save money for the financing of film productions. While still at school, Herzog began hitchhiking through Europe. At the age of 18, he had a brief job at the docks in Manchester, England, before going on excursion through Greece and northern Africa. Returning to Germany, he shot his first short film, Heracles, which was released in 1962. In a seemingly never-ending journey for knowledge, he began to study history and literature in Munich, though he didn't graduate. Also, on the topic of education without graduation, Herzog would spend an incredibly short time here in the magical city of Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. So, that initial short film would be followed by two additional ones. All the while, Herzog worked various jobs financing them. He would win the prestigious Karl Meyer Price Award for a script that would later become his first feature in 1967, Signs of Life. In 1972, he shot Aguirre, The Wrath of God, which would be his breakthrough and garner international attention. The film follows a group of Spanish explorers in search of the legendary city of El Dorado, while recording their gradual mental and physical self-destruction. The film was sonically important, as it was his first of five collaborations with Florian Frica and his band Popol Vuh. On the acting side of things, it was also noteworthy in that it was the first team-up with volatile actor Klaus Kinski. In the following years, Herzog would gain a following internationally as one of the most renowned filmmakers of the emerging new German cinema movement, along with fellow directors Wim Wenders, Volker Schlondorf, Edgar Reitz, Werner Schroeder, and Rainier Werner Fassbender. After a successful decade in which Herzog shot feature films, documentaries, and shorts, one of those being Nosferatu, one of his biggest and most ambitious from this work in the, in, his, in the 80s would be 82's Fitzcarraldo, his first film after Nosferatu. The movie is about an opera lover who tries to build an opera house in the middle of the Peruvian jungle. The production was an enormous undertaking, pushed to extremes only to be stricken by catastrophes that resulted in the film taking nearly four years to complete. Herzog started taking his directing skills to the opera stages in 1986. This run would result in him staging 27 operas all over the world. With his film output turning its focus to documentaries, Herzog would move his base of operations to Los Angeles, California. 
Despite being a prolific and talented director, Herzog would occasionally take his talent in front of the camera. Herzog's acting resume includes roles in 2012's Jack Reacher, as well as voiceover spots in episodes of Rick and Morty and The Simpsons, amongst others. One of his most high-profile recent roles came in the hit show The Mandalorian, where he appeared in three episodes in the role of The Client. A quote from the official Werner Herzog website really breaks down the career of the auteur thusly. They write, Herzog's films are characterized by a surreal and subtly exotic quality, and he is hailed as one of the most innovative contemporary directors. His characters are dreamers, conquerors, often facing loneliness and deep longings. He has his very own approach to cinematic truth, often calling his documentaries a kind of ecstatic truth. So with a little bit of talk about the director out of the way, let's turn to the, one of the leads of this film, and that would be Bruno Ganz. Bruno Ganz was born in Zurich, Switzerland, the son of a Swiss mechanic and his northern Italian wife. As a teenager, he attended drama school and later worked as a bookseller as well as training to be a paramedic. He left Switzerland in the early 60s to become a stage performer in Gottingen and Bremen. He debuted in 1961, gaining a reputation as a reflexive, reflective and technically skilled stage actor. The 60s wouldn't see Gans acting confined exclusively to the stage. No, no, no. He would also make his cinematic debut with an appearance in 1960's The Gentleman in the Black Derby. The multi-talented actor soon became one of the best-known and most acclaimed actors in the German language, collaborating with many of the most respected European actors and directors of his time. He also started international features that reached a global audience. In 1970, he co-founded the theater company Schaubun in Berlin, Germany. The 70s would also see Gans's film career really take off. Gans made his film breakthrough in a major part in the 1976 film Summerfolk launching a widely recognized film career in Europe and the United States. He worked with several directors of the new German cinema, like Werner Herzog and Wim Wenders, who we mentioned earlier, and also with international directors like Eric Romer and Francis Ford Coppola, among others. According to his obituary written by Jacob Pinter for NPR, he wrote, Gans was so convincing portraying an angel in 1987's Wings of Desire, that for years afterwards, strangers would treat him as an angel in real life. People in Plains said, ah, no need to be afraid, because with you here, nothing can happen. Now we are safe, Gans told a Danish magazine in 1999. Or a mother told her child, look, there's your guardian angel. And they weren't joking. Given Gans's gentleness, it's ironic that millions of viewers came to know his work only from a role showing him as one of history's most evil people. In 2004's Downfall, he gave a rounded and highly considered portrayal of Adolf Hitler during the final days of the, direct, of the dictator's life. Gans's portrayal of Adolf Hitler was widely acclaimed by critics. Among Gans's later roles were the grandfather in the literary adaptation of Heidi in 2015, a scientific healer in 2017's The Party, and ancient Roman poet Virgil in Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built in 2018. Now, we got one half of the couple, Jonathan Harker. Now, let's turn to his wife in this film, played by Isabel Ajani. Isabel Yasmina Ajani was born on June 27, 1955, in Paris, France, followed by a younger brother, Eric. Isabel grew up bilingual, speaking French and German fluently. 
After winning the school recitation contest, Johnny began acting at the age of 12 in amateur theater. She successfully passed her baccalaureate and was taking classes at the University of Vincennes by, 19, by 1976. At the age of 14, Johnny starred in her first motion picture, 1970's La Petite Bougenat. Her first taste of fame came on the st uh, first taste of fame on the stage came in 1972 with several roles that won her great acclaim. Despite the notoriety or because of it, she soon left the stage to pursue a film career. After minor roles in several films, she enjoyed modest success in the 1974 film La Gifle. This success caught the eyes of director Francois Truffaut. He knew Ajani had a special quality and immediately cast her in her first major role in The Story of Adele H. in 1975. Critics loved her performance, with American critic Pauline Kael describing her acting talents as prodigious. This breakthrough performance earned Ajani a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actress in the Leading Role, becoming the youngest Best Actress nominee at the time. This opened the floodgates for more American-centric productions. After some moderate success in the U.S., she returned to Europe to star in Werner Herzog's 1979 remake of Nosferatu, which was well-received critically and performed well at the box offices of Europe. On the personal front, 79 saw Johnny become a mom. From 1989 to 1995, she, also, she had a relationship with Daniel Day-Lewis, which ended before the birth of their son Gabriel Kane Day-Lewis in 1995. In 1981, she received a double Cannes Film Festival Best Actress Award, for her roles in the film The Quartet and in the horror film Possession. The following year, she received her first César Award for Possession, in which she portrayed a woman having a nervous breakdown. In 1983, she won her second César for her depiction of a vengeful woman in the French blockbuster One Deadly Summer. In 1988, she co-produced and starred in a biopic of the sculptor Camille Claudel. She received her third César and second Oscar nomination for her role in the film, becoming the first French actress to receive two Oscar nominations. The film was also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. She received her fourth César for the 1994 film Queen Margot and her fifth for 2009's Skirt Day, the most that any actress had received. Now, for our last biography section, let's turn to the ghoul of the movie, Klaus Kinski. Kinski was born on October 18, 1926, in Sopot, Poland. Kinski's family would head to Germany during the Great Depression of the 1930s. During World War II, at the age of 16, he enlisted in the German army and was captured by British forces. For the remainder of the war, he was a prisoner in a British camp where he gained his first acting experience in shows staged by fellow prisoners. Here, he played roles on an improvised stage. His acting career would begin in 1946 with small roles on the stages of Berlin. His first big break came in the world of the spoken word. Author S.S. Prower, who we're going to mention a lot in this episode, wrote a phenomenal uh, breakdown about this uh, film. Um, so much cool stuff, uh, but we're going to start with this little bit. S.S. Prower writes, Kinski had first achieved fame and notoriety as a reciter of poetry, specializing in German translations and adaptations of Villon and Rimbaud, 
whose magnetic voice and presence led some female members of his audience to send him letters by the sackload from German women under his spell. But not everything was artsy and lovey-dovey in the world of Klaus Kinski. Prower continues, He could be sweet, considerate, and affectionate to his fellow actors, but his rages on set and off were legendary, and it needed all of his director's patience and obstinacy to coax him into a precarious equilibrium. Kinski has had many cameo parts in German and Italian films, but it was Herzog who gave him starring roles that, for which he will be remembered. Now, this successful, if emotionally trying, tag team started with his appearance in Herzog's 72 film, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. The late 70s and early 80s would see the Kinski-Herzog connection continue with 1979's Wojciech and Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht. Fitzcarraldo would follow in 1982. Now, if we rewind a little bit to those two 1979 flicks, Kinski himself explains how these roles came to be. And this comes from his autobiography, Kinski Uncut. And now this book, uh, I don't know how to put it bluntly or uh, sweetly, but Klaus Kinski was not a nice guy. And reading this book really highlights the fact that he was not at all a good person. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating read, but a bit of a disgusting read. So if you read it, it's wild. Um, but it really is a book about himself where he really doesn't work very hard to not paint himself in a terrible light. But there are some interesting anecdotes and some interesting things that come out of this in relation to what we're going to talk about today. So in the book about these two roles in 1979, Kinski Uncut, he writes, Herzog rings me up at 1 a.m. asking if I want to play the title roles in Nosferatu and Wojciech. I yell at him for calling me at 1 a.m., but I agree. I've totally forgotten that 10 years ago I refused to play Wojciech on stage because it's suicide, and I tossed the script in the garbage can. I don't know why I've said yes this time. It's all destiny, no doubt. Kinski, ever the hard one to figure out, once said, I wish I'd never been an actor. I'd rather have been a streetwalker, selling my body, than selling my tears and my laughter, my grief, and my joy. Kinski died on November 23, 1991 of a sudden heart attack at his home in Lagunitas, California at the age of 65. His body was cremated and his ashes were scattered into the Pacific Ocean. Now, the world of vampires on film is a wild and diverse history. Many think Murnau's version is the first, but it wasn't. Whilst it was the inspiration for Werner Herzog. There were blood-sucking cinematic shenanigans shortly before Count Orlok skulked around the world's theaters. In an article entitled The Quiet Horror of Nosferatu the Vampire at 40 by Hollywood reporter writer Richard Newby, we learn about the earliest appearance of everyone's favorite bloodsucker. Newby writes, The first Dracula film predated Nosferatu by a year. The Hungarian film Dracula's Death in 1921 marked the first on-screen appearance of Count Dracula, though it did not follow the plot of Stoker's novel. Instead, Karoli Lathje's film focuses on the visions of a woman in an insane asylum who meets a fellow inmate, Count Dracula, who may be real or just another nightmare. In bringing his reinvention to the screen, Herzog looked to the past of German film to make his, Dra to, to make his Dracula come to life. With that in mind, 
There were four traditions Herzog sought to use in his take on Nosferatu. As we break down the film, we will be dipping into those traditions through some great insights from S.S. Prower, like I mentioned before, and his book from the BFI Film Classics line entitled Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht. I can't explain how great of a book this is for any film lover, especially if you're interested in Werner Herzog or vampire films. This is a must read. It's breezy. All these BFI books, they're all very short and succinct. It's all great info right off the bat. So definitely look it up. It is a fantastic read. First, S.S. Prower writes, Encouraged by the great historian of Weimar film, Lottie Eisner, he linked his work to what he believed to have been the legitimate tradition, broken off in 1933 by producing an homage to and variation of the work of the Weimar filmmaker he most admired, Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. Second, he connected his very German film with wider European traditions by choosing, for leading parts, an actress who had honed her craft and made her name at the end of the French Nouvelle Vague, and a man whose graphic and literary work, produced mainly in France, had a well-deserved European reputation, Isabel Ajani and Roland Topor, respectively. One of the advantages Herzog had going into filming was copyright law being in his favor this time around. He didn't have to walk the same copyright tightrope Murnau did back in 1922. By now he was able to give all the characters their rightful, book-accurate names. Well, sort of. As you will see, Herzog did switch the names of Mina and Lucy, but everything else is original. Though the names changed, Herzog did hang on to many of Murnau's touches and flourishes, including his alterations of Stoker's plot. One of the most striking aspects of any version of Nosferatu is the appearance of Orlok slash Dracula. In his autobiography, Kinski explains how the visual transformation affected his emotional being. Kinski writes, The departure point is Munich. Four weeks before shooting starts, I have to fly there for costuming. And this is where I shave my skull for the first time. I feel exposed, vulnerable, defenseless, not just physically, but chiefly in my emotions and my nerves. I feel as if I have no scalp, as if my protective envelope has been removed and my soul can't live without it, as if my soul has been flayed. With pre-production kicking off, let's look at the filming of Nosferatu from inside the production. Beverly Walker, who we heard at the beginning of the episode, was hired as an advisor on Werner Herzog's reimagining of this Murnau classic, and she went from being a member of the ramshackle filmmaking team to being in front of the camera. And she recalls these experiences for the autumn 1978 issue of Sight and Sound magazine in an article entitled Adventures on the Set of Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. Walker writes, For the first time, Herzog has an adequate budget and the backing of a film establishment. Made in English and secondarily in German, the film will be distributed by 20th Century Fox, currently America's most adventurous studio. Herzog has produced it himself and has complete artistic control and production and autonomy, a rare if not unprecedented privilege for a director whose austere vision has yet to connect with the broad-based American public. But Fox is well aware of his standing in Europe and with critics and many young filmgoers everywhere and agreed to participate in the project under his precise conditions. They did not even see a script until two weeks before filming began in the Netherlands. 
One person who is not as optimistic about the filming conditions would be star Klaus Kinski. As we said, he was temperamental, he was angry, he was not a nice guy for the most part. But he describes the living conditions of the productions while getting in some shots at Herzog and his crew. Kinski writes, Herzog has put up the entire gang in a ramshackle house where they camp on the floor like pigs in groups of three or more. The chow is inedible. He continues, I demand a trailer that I pick myself so I can live in it, sleep in it, cook, and do my laundry. I don't want to be billeted in some bleep, bleepy, check hotel where you run into the whole motley crew after shooting. Now, before we get into the film proper, let's take a quick gander at the most noticeable part of the film, the title. As we'll learn later, Herzog saw the German version of his picture as his favorite. For that reason, I decided to name the episode after his German take. Plus, like that was actually a really cool name. Um, but it's still an interesting choice for the director when it came to the English language title. The title under which Herzog's film known in, is known in the English-speaking countries, Nosferatu the Vampire, links itself, S.S. Prower explains, through the spelling of its key noun, to pre-Stoker vampire stories, like John Polidori's Byron-inspired The Vampire, which is V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, and to the anonymously published long sequence of Victorian penny dreadfuls of Varney the Vampire. As the film starts, it wastes no time in filling the viewer with a sense of dread and unease. As the opening credits roll, we see a collection of skeletons seemingly deep in a tomb. Many frozen in grotesque poses seemingly screaming or huddled up. It soon switches to a bat flying in slow motion and a quick cut to a screaming Lucy Harker, played here by Isabel and Johnny, waking from a nightmare. For a little backstory on these corpses, let's turn back to S.S. Prower and hear how they return from the dead for a starring role in the film's opening. Prower writes, Herzog had seen these corpses exhumed from an overcrowded cemetery during a visit to the Mexican town of Guanajuato in the 1960s. He now went back, took the corpses out of the glass cases in which they had been displayed, and carried them, one by one, to a wall, where he arranged them in a sequence that runs roughly from childhood to old age. Several of these mummified bodies have open mouths, suggesting that the strange chant of Popol Vuh's on the soundtrack and is a chant of the dead accompanied by percussion that resembles an eerie heartbeat. Lucy's husband Jonathan, sleeping in a separate bed, gets up to console her. As the opening credits resume, we see the land of the canals they live in. The town that will eventually fall to Nosferatu, but for now, is Wismar. But in reality, it was Delft, Netherlands. It was a perfect spot to film, according to Beverly Walker, whom we heard from a bit ago. She writes, The provincial 17th century town of Delft was a perfect choice. Though it had some importance 300 years ago, it had slowly evolved one might say even atrophied, into a museum piece, albeit an exquisite one. Flowers blossom in profusion. The cobbled streets carry as many bicyclists as motorists. The windows of every dwelling are framed by sparkling white curtains. And there are the canals lined by blossoming lime trees, perfectly described in Herzog's screenplay as going no place but back upon themselves. Delft's new church in whose shadow Herzog shot many scenes, is the official burial place for kings and queens of the Netherlands. 
Queen Wilhelmina reportedly used to say, I do not go to Delft because eventually I have to go there. We also see two incredibly cute kittens frolicking and playing, eventually pawing at a locket containing a picture of Lucy. The couple has a quick breakfast before Jonathan hurriedly gets ready for work and soon joins the rat race of the old creepy real estate agency. Well, you gotta love Herzog for appreciating the cat scene from Murnau's original and increasing that cuteness twofold by adding a second cat. And that is real directorial skill that Herzog exemplifies. Upon arriving, his boss, Mr. Renfield, tells Harker that he has gotten a letter from a Count Dracula who wishes to move into the neighborhood. He must go to Transylvania and complete the sale. Renfield warns that it will cost a lot of sweat and possibly a lot of blood. Roland Topor is a man of many talents as witnessed here in his portrayal of Renfield. He was born on January 7th, 1938 in Paris, France. Any quick biography I do here would only be an injustice to this man and his many talents. But suffice it to say, he made the most out of his 59 years in this world. Topor was an illustrator, painter, novelist, playwright, writer of film and television, actor, and filmmaker. Topor died on April 16, 1997 in Paris of a cerebral hemorrhage. Herzog saw Topor in a television interview, which is where he heard his wild laugh. That laugh sold the director on being his Renfield. Funnily enough, though, the voice you hear from Topor in the film isn't actually his. The same can be said about Isabella Johnny, since they both spoke French, their voices were dubbed in later. Now, Harker is up to the task. He wants, to he wants a commission from the sale to buy Lucy and himself a new house, and to escape the canals, which go nowhere back but on themselves. Renfield assures Harker that Transylvania is a wonderful place, a little gloomy, but very exciting. It turns out the Count would like the house near Harker's. The deal must be made ASAP, which means Jonathan has to leave today. When he tells Lucy, she tells him she has misgivings and terrible dreams. She feels it like a force, an inner nameless deadly fear. He gives in, at least a little bit, and they take a last walk along the beach before he heads out towards the Carpathian Mountains. Jonathan leaves Lucy in the care of Mina before the two kiss each other goodbye, and he leaves via horse. This leads us to a great travelogue of shots and scenes as Harker rides through the hills and woods, and eventually into a small village. While Herzog is still very much operating within the realm of German Expressionism, there is a lushness to his film, at least early on, with its wide nature shots. But little by little, the life is drained from the picture, and the events become confined to stone structures that plague wary citizens, hopelessly seclude themselves behind, Richard Newby writes. He is welcomed into the village by a group of gypsies, and he eventually makes his way into the inn for supper. This is the obligatory, everyone is happy and chatty until he mentions he is going to the castle of Count Dracula, and everyone shuts up and a plate is broken shenanigans. You see this in every vampire movie. So it's not really a, vamp a Dracula movie without it, so Herzog was at least tied to that cliché. The innkeeper says there will be no horse or carriage that will make that journey with him. The gypsies further back up his claims of the danger that will consume a man at the Borgo Pass. And they say the castle is just a ghost castle in a land of phantoms. Despite the gypsies playing a small part in the film, Herzog saw something special and increased their role. According to Beverly Walker, she writes, 
True to his penchant for people scarred by society's neglect, Herzog had become fascinated by the gypsies upon his arrival and had himself fetched them and had himself fetched them from their village especially for this scene. In the days to come, he increasingly incorporated them into the fabric of the film and expressed no sympathy for those complaining of bites from the army of fleas leaving off them. It's the justice of the flea, he had said, immediately placing his loyalties on the side of not only the gypsy, but also the flea. As Harker gets ready for bed, he is given some bedside reading by the innkeeper's wife. This book explains the stories of vampires and bloodsuckers, of corpses which devour their own flesh, of incubuses and succubi, of the living dead who follow strangers in the night, and also of Transylvania, Nosferatu beyond death, the curse will last until the end of time. The curse of the vampire Nosferatu. You know, just a little light reading before bed. But Har Harker eventually packs it in the book, packs the book in his bag, and he sleeps for the night. The next morning, Harker tries to get a ride to the Borgo Pass, but the local horse driver will have none of it. And Jonathan begins his fellowship-like trek on foot. He makes way over mountain and under waterfall. It is gorgeous, but still with an air of creepiness and unease. Here he stops to take a break, sitting on a large rock looking for direction as the sky grows overcast and gloomy. In his article, Opera Meets Film, the narrative and emotional nuance of Wagner's Das Rheingold and Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire for OperaWire.com, writer David Salazar explains what we are seeing and hearing. Salazar writes, As Harker sits atop a hill completely lost, Herzog introduces the viewer to the opening notes of the prelude to Wagner's Das Rheingold. The iconic E-flat major arpeggios slowly build up as Herzog moves day into night in a clear sky to one overrun by clouds. The effect is immediate and fascinating, Salazar continues. While the images grow more sinister, the music grows more lush and hopeful. While most directors might opt for a more obvious choice of music matching the darkened state, in Wagnerian terms, the prelude to Siegfried offers up a dark and menacing tone, Herzog's counterpoint works precisely because it creates an emotional confusion. On one hand, we know intuitively that there is danger on the horizon. The images cannot be clear in this regard. But on the other, the music offers up aspiration and sublime beauty. Harker is back on the walk, passing through a cave, only to be picked up by a mysterious and scary-looking carriage, which carries him to the castle of one Count Dracula. The coach that ubers Harker to Dracula's castle was, in reality, a coach used for funerals. It was made mostly of glass, and Herzog had seen it in Slovakia and had it transported so it can be used in the film. He walks up the steps as the big entry doors open to reveal Dracula, played by Klaus Kinski. Dracula tells Harker that he has been expected and welcomed to the castle. He ushers Harker in, saying the night is cold and he must be tired and hungry. A nice meal was laid out before him. He tries to do business with the Count, but Dracula is more concerned with his guest's welfare. As Harker eats, Dracula watches creepily and breathes heavily. The wolves howl in the background as Dracula explains it is the children of the night making their music. After some more creepy small talk, Dracula examines the contract. Soon, a very scary alarm clock goes off, which proves unsettling for Harker, who accidentally cuts his finger while slicing bread. Dracula offers his services to help the wary traveler. 
The knife is old and dirty, he says. It could give you blood poisoning. Next, he offers to suck it clean. It's the oldest remedy in the world, he explains. Harker wants none of it. But Dracula grabs his hand and starts sucking it. The host becomes quite aggressive at this point. He backs Harker into a chair. He talks about how he wants to sit with Harker through the night, since he is away during daylight hours. As this is going on, we shift back to a sleeping Lucy. She wakes up as if sensing danger, a, a presence. She looks up and sees a bat has flown into her window. This is a more disparate version of Count Dracula than viewers have traditionally been accustomed to. Whether it be Shrek, Lugosi, or really any number of other cinematic counts. But Richard Newby of The Hollywood Reporter writes, Klaus Kinsey's Dracula in the 1979 film comes across with a level of exhaustion and existential misery that isn't superior to Shrek's portrayal, but offers a different lens through which to see the character, now stripped of the sexuality that had been built over the past 48 years. It is the next morning and there's a feast laid out on the table. Harker awakens in the chair. His thumb clean, but two small marks exist on his neck. He wanders around the eerily empty room as he examines the heavy-duty breakfast buffet set out before him. As he's doing this, he continues to explore the castle. He eventually makes his way back to his room, where he notices those two marks on his neck. We're back in Wismar, and a disturbed Lucy walking along the beach. Flip back to Jonathan in his room writing a letter to his beloved. This castle is so strange, he writes. Everything about it looks so unreal. It's now night, and the Count has awoken to continue the real estate wheeling and dealing with old Harker. Dracula tells Harker that he has no need for sunlight or the shiny things youth adores. Time is an abyss profound as a thousand nights. Centuries come and go, and to be unable to grow old is terrible, he tells Harker. That is not the worst, Dracula adds. There are things more horrible than that. Can you imagine enduring centuries, experiencing each day the same futile things? But Dracula moves from the existential to put the land acquisition talks back on track. Whilst taking the documents, the locket with Lucy's photo pops out and opens in front of the Count. When Dracula sees her, he is instantly infatuated. He signs the papers, not caring about a price or any other external factor. He knows he must have that house near Lucy, and it must be soon. Upon signing on the dotted line, he is already plotting on how to beat Harker back to Lucy. The vampire of Murnau's film is soulless. He is driven by a physical need to sustain his undead Nosferatu state by ingesting the blood of the living, and by a vestige of sexuality that makes him eager to feast on a beautiful neck. S.S. Prower points out, Herzog's vampire, however, lets us into his inner life sufficiently to know that he has retained a suffering soul through his many years of undead existence. Now, some time has passed and Harker is in his room getting ready for bed and doing a little vampire research. He who feeds on the blood of mankind, he reads, who unredeemed taketh his refuge in caves, tombs, coffins, filled with the unblessed soil of cemeteries, wherein the black death hath reaped his harvest, the plague. Pretty harrowing stuff, right? And a bit of foreshadowing to boot. Now, Harker is awakened by that, to see that iconic image of Count Dracula looking at him oh so creepily 
as he slowly makes his way into his bedroom. Dracula moves closer, eventually pouncing on his prey. At the same time, Lucy has begun sleepwalking. She is stopped and brought back inside. She awakens, yelling for Jonathan. Dracula skulks away from his victim as Van Helsing makes a house call to Lucy. He thinks nothing serious is going on. What could possibly be happening? Remember those four pillars author S.S. Prower was talking about earlier? Well, we hit the first two, and before I forget about it completely, let's use this moment to look at number three. Prower writes, Third, he shot much of the film in the Czech Republic, using English as a lingua franca best understood by his international cast, and released it in three languages, though he always maintained that he thought the version in German was the most authentic. Harker is awake now and angry. He is storming about the castle looking for his predatory host. He eventually makes his way into an underground vault and a sarcophagus. What he sees through the cracked lid terrifies him. He is in shock. It is night now, and as Harker is packing his bags to get the heck out of Dodge, he sees Dracula, single-handedly, mind you, loading up a carriage of coffins and speeding off. He puts two and two together and realizes he must get to Wismar. Lucy is in danger, and he needs to get there to help. As he is locked in his room, he makes a makeshift rope out of torn sheets. He makes his way down, but with a big thud. He wakes up the next morning on the ground and looking like crap. Meanwhile, the coffins now are on a raft making their way downstream to eventually be delivered to the boat for ocean transport. The customs folks are, the customs folks are a bit suspicious and open up a coffin to check. It contains only dirt and a handful of rats. A worker tries to handle it barefoot and barehanded, only to be bitten for his trouble. In this scene, you will see a barefoot worker handling the rats. Those feet and hands belong to none other than Werner Herzog. None of the actors felt particularly good about messing with rats in such an unprotected state. So in an effort to get the shot he needed, Herzog stepped up and took the role of stunt feet in the film. So... Now we're in a country hospital and Harker is in bed looking like he is about to die. He warns Mother Superior that, he, that the black coffins must be stopped. The boat, however, is sailing smoothly towards Wismar. Back home, Lucy is sitting on a beach on a bench, surrounded by crosses as she looks out into the vastness of the sea. She is incredibly worried about Jonathan and knows something is wrong. She is told to believe in God's plan, but she can't bring herself to do it. Now, this is my favorite shot composition, perhaps in all of film. This setup of her with the crosses looking out on the beach, it is a perfect, perfect shot to me. No matter which version of the movie you watch, I love it. And no matter how many times I see it, it never gets old. And it, it truly is a piece of, uh, piece of art. Now, we're at the insane asylum that Van Helsing works at, and he is warned that their newest inmate is acting up. This new inmate is Renfield, and he was locked up for biting a cow. Now he has a cage of bugs and keeps saying, blood is life, blood is life, over and over again. He is giggling maniacally as Van Helsing is told of his fly-eating habit. After attacking a guard, Renfield gets the straitjacket. Now we're back at the country hospital as Harker disregards all sound medical advice and heads off 
on the chase via horseback. On board the ship, the captain is filling out his captain's log, discussing all of the bad luck that has befallen the crew. The cursed nature of the voyage. Everything that's gone wrong since they left the port. One after another, he writes. Four mariners and a second mate have taken ill. One sailor and our cook have disappeared without a trace. The captain adds, A rumor circulated that there was a stranger on board. It terrified all. He explained nothing was found but rats. But with his crew dwindling and his prospects for survival minimal, the captain ties himself to the steering wheel, determined to protect his ship. As the captain literally becomes one with the ship, audio-wise we are reminded of the operatic leanings of this film's score. We turn back to David Salazar for some more opera musings. Salazar writes, The music makes its appearance on two separate instances, both very closely linked with the first appearance and its thematic implications. The second time we hear the arpeggio of, arpeggios of Wagner's prelude comes when the captain of the ship on which Dracula is hiding writes a letter of the, writes a letter of the mysterious passenger. His letter prefaces Dracula's eventual murder in all, of all the crew members and his eventual takeover of the ship on his way to Harker's town. And it appears yet again over an image of rats on the harbor infesting the land in broad daylight. The music plays as we cut to an image of the, lo of the lonely village at night with Dracula leaving the ship, coffin in hand, eventually settling into an abandoned church. The effect is very similar to the initial introduction of the music. The glorious nature of Wagner's music counterpoints the sinister dealings by Dracula. So, I know next to nothing about opera, but I can't say this article was a fantastic read. I mean, it's a bit above my full, I don't know, comprehension level, but to any opera or music aficionado within the Venn diagram of opera lover horror fan, really should check this article out. It was a great read and really highlights a lot of stuff that I probably would never have really noticed on, on my own. So now Lucy is at the insane asylum asking Renfield for answers. She knows that the last person to send her husband somewhere was Renfield and she hasn't seen her husband or heard from her husband since. So she wants Renfield to tell her what the heck is going on. But he just giggles and tells her that the master is coming. Seeing she's not getting anything of any use, she leaves. As the, as the last guard files out, Renfield steals a newspaper from his back pocket and reads it. It reads, Plague. In Transylvania, in the Black Sea port of Varna, the plague has appeared. This thrills Renfield to no end. He is as giddy as can be at the news of a plague, and what or who the spread of the disease will bring with it. It is night on the ship. We see the bright white of Dracula on the ship's deck. Slowly he moves across, prey in his sights. This shot is a bit of a reversal from what Murnau filmed so many years ago. In that, it was a lighter out, but here Herzog made it pitch black, all the better to contrast with Dracula's pale, ashen features. This was really a clever move and made the count really, really creepy. So we're quickly reminded of Jonathan's journey before heading back to Lucy gazing out the window. In the window's reflection, you see a ship passing by. While this swan is no ghost ship, the real thing will soon be passing by as well. In fact, we see it floating, dead captain still attached to the wheel. 
Now the boat is on the canal and knocking to a stop at, in Wismar. Renfield, from his cell, sees the doomed ship pass by. Onlookers have gathered around as city officials climb aboard to investigate the circumstances of this derelict vessel. They untie and examine the dead captain. In addition to the log, they find the ship teeming with rats. He ain't kidding when he says the ship is infested with rats. They are everywhere and start to make their way landside. And when I say they made landfall, thousands and thousands of grayish rats overtake the streets of Wismar. Don't forget, these are real rats who cause real problems for the real inhabitants of the real city of Delft. S.S. Prower explains, In the case of Nosferatu, the quarrels with the inhabitants of the Dutch city of Delft centered on his importation of hundreds of Hungarian rats, originally white but painstakingly dyed gray and blow-dried to save them from pneumonia, which the Dutch thought a danger to their city, whose canals already had a rat problem. But Prower actually downplays the rat menace this film posed. The real number of rats was closer to 11,000. For filming of these scenes, Delft was completely secured with nets for the release of all these critters. Every hole and crevice was sealed up, leaving nothing and nowhere for the rats to go. The production was given permission to do it, but it still led to a fair amount of ill will. These rats, in case you were curious, were brought in from Hungary. Now, Van Helsing, among many other town officials, meet to examine what's going on with this ship. They read the ship's logs and find some entries relating to plagues. When they read the word plague, they all freak out and run and hide. They are in big trouble. Only Van Helsing remains in the hall, thinking deep thoughts about their current situation. With night fallen, Dracula unloads his coffin cargo and takes it to his new bachelor pad. He carries a coffin through a cemetery on its way to its new home. Here we get some really cool wide shots of Dracula loading and unloading. The next day, the nearly dead Harker rides a carriage for the final leg of his journey before being reunited with Lucy. Jonathan is out of his mind. He is completely out of it, to the point where he doesn't even recognize Lucy, which causes her to faint. He is incredibly disoriented. Van Helsing seems to think it is a very severe brain fever. Harker complains that the sun is hurting him. Lucy draws the curtains. By now, the streets of Wismar are empty. Fear of the plague has made it a ghost town. Circumstances perfect for a predator like Dracula. Out and about in the darkness, Dracula gets his peeping Tom on as he watches Lucy in her house. Later, as Lucy prepares for bed, the Count enters her room, his unmistakable shadow cast across her wall. You must excuse my rude entrance, Dracula says. I am Count Dracula. Lucy fires back. Since he has been with you, he is ruined. He will not die, he answers. She doesn't believe a word, he says. The only thing that is sure is death, she counters. Dying is cruelty against the unsuspecting, he answers back. But death is not everything. It is more cruel to be unable to die. I wish I could partake of the love which is between you and Jonathan. She spurns his advances despite his pleas for her to join him. To be his ally, she is clear and forceful in her rebuking of the Count. And with that, he makes his way out, failed. Now, to say Herzog shared a love-hate relationship with Klaus Kinski is a bit of an understatement. They would often clash, only to come back together for another film. 
there are a lot of quotes from Kinski's autobiography that really show how mean Kinski could be and some of the some of the terrible stuff he said about Werner Herzog he and like there's one segment like talked about the director and the filming in Nosferatu so many bad words I can't even repeat any of it but it's I guess for lack of a better word hilariously written but it's definitely worth checking out though the book like I said really only like uh legitimizes the fact that Kinski that Kinski was not a good person and really backs up the reputation he got and it's an insane book I will say to say the least Back to the movie. Soon the plague is spreading, and coffins and processions are the only events in town. We see some really cool processions as the coffins are marched to their final resting places. Some really cool uh, framing of shots and the motion of the people. Like, it's really cool, kind of artistic feel to it. But we're going to leave the processions and go back to the insane asylum, where, with some rudimentary escaping skills... Renfield breaks out of the asylum and is on the loose. Now, with him on the loose, Lucy is back home reading from the vampire book that Jonathan had brought home. She reads, He who drinketh the blood of his victims and turns them as well into phantoms of the night. He is as a shadow that hath no reflection. In the shape of a bat he wafts into the chambers of the sleeping Abandon all hope, ye who he doth approach. All the while she is reading this, Jonathan is behind her in a corner. He has lost it. He's laughing. He's looking at and talking to things that aren't there. Lucy is heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken, seeing what her beloved has become. Next she reads the important stuff. And yet, though the vampire be an unnatural being, he must obey some natural laws. She reads, the sign of the cross bans him. The consecrated host can bar his retreat. And should a woman pure of heart make him forget the cry of the cock, the first light of day will destroy him. Bingo. Before we head to the climax of our tale, let's dig into that fourth pillar of tradition laid out by S.S. Prower. Prower writes, last, he chose in the Florian Frique, a composer who accompanied his images with music that mingled singing voices with electronic instruments unknown before the war. To build on that concept even more, I found this quote from Waxwork Records founder Kevin Bergeron that really nailed what Fricky and his band Popol Vuh set out to do with this picture. By the way, in case you're curious, Waxwork Records put out a remastered version of this film's soundtrack. Now, Bergeron explains, The typical horror score seems to actively try to create an eerie feeling for the listener and audience watching the movie. It's all set up for you. What Popol Vuh did was create an emotional atmosphere for the characters in the actual film. So, to finish off these thoughts on the music of the film, let's go the other direction and talk about how important Herzog was in choosing when not to use music. In an article on Vice.com about the film soundtrack, writer Joe Yannick points out, Nosferatu the Vampire's single most unique attribute is that Herzog almost never uses music to influence the audience. 
Almost all scenes of violence are depicted in near silence. The aural backdrop nothing more than echoes of distant howling wolves and roaring winds. That's one really cool thing about this flick. This film, at least compared to almost any other film, is incredibly sparse when it comes to music. It really makes an impact on the viewer, I think. Music was used sparingly, but incredibly thoughtfully, and that really adds to the atmosphere, the ambiance, and really just the overall movie-watching experience. But back to the movie. The newly escaped Renfield has met up with his master at last. Dracula orders Renfield to go north to Riga. The plague and rats will follow. Society in Wismar is completely broken down. There is no town council left. The mayor is gone too. Just death. An unending string of coffins and death. Lucy makes her way through Wismar looking for any hope. But there is none to be had. She knows the reason for all of this evil. But there is no one to help her. Or really even listen to her for that matter. Even Van Helsing is no help. He writes off her concerns as an overactive imagination. She says the book contains all the answers, but still Van Helsing gives no help. You must come with me and help crush this monster, she pleads with Van Helsing. She knows wherever the coffins are, the Count will be nearby. Van Helsing still refuses, refuses to heed any of Lucy's information. She resigns herself to completing the dangerous task alone, and Van Helsing leaves. Lucy tries to talk to Jonathan, but it is no use. He still doesn't know who she is or really even care. Lucy makes her way past the rats and into a creepy abode of the undead. She examines the building, sneaking around seeing if there's anything she can learn. She finds a coffin in the dilapidated building, but it's just filled with rats. She crumbles some holy wafers and consecrated hosts and sprinkles them over the soil. Wismar is in disarray at this point. Animals roam freely, and what few people remain have gone a bit crazy. They're all about to die, and they know it. They are enjoying themselves by dancing and eating the day away. There will be no tomorrow, so you might as well have a fun last night, right? These images are some of the most chilling and memorable in the whole film to me. Lucy walks through these throngs of wild people and wild animals. One of the most memorable is a riff on The Last Supper, but being eaten by a group of people surrounded by a sea of rats. Really amazing, thought-provoking, and emotion-grabbing stuff, but super, super creepy. But Lucy is called to see Mina dead. Van Helsing is now clear. Van Helsing is clear now that it's not the plague. Mina has two bite marks in her neck. Lucy knows what must be done. She heads home gives Jonathan a kiss, and begins preparations for her taking the fight to Dracula. Still in the corner, Jonathan is surrounded by consecrated stuff to keep Dracula from attacking him. Think of it like a salt circle, keeping a ghost contained. She breaks them and spreads, them, spreads the crumbs around her husband. Next is to use her purity to cause Dracula to not heed the cry of the cock and get blasted with morning light. To do this, she lays in bed, awaiting her assailant. She is scared at first, but lowers her arms and lets him touch and caress her body before finally sinking his teeth in. With one hand on her breast and the other holding her head as he drinks, we see slow-motion bats in flight. He continues to drink, unaware that the sun is rising. He starts to slow down, but Lucy pulls him closer, urging him to continue. The roosters roost as Dracula realizes what has happened. 
He slowly turns around to the window as the sun shines on him. His eyes turn white and he gasps for breath. He falls, convulsing and writhing on the ground. Now this is a change from the death of Nosferatu in Murnau's film. In the original, Nosferatu gets hit by sun and turns into a cloud of smoke. Dracula's death here is more visceral and disturbing to watch. Herzog really does great work in making this death feel impactful and hard to watch. Just the sounds Kinski makes as his Dracula dies are quite unnerving. Lucy is content with what she has done and now she has destroyed the darkness. She breathes her last breath and dies. Van Helsing arrives and bemoans the fact that he didn't listen to her when she needed him most. What's done is done, and he calls for a stake and a hammer to dispatch the fiend forever. As Van Helsing walks past Jonathan, stake in hand, Jonathan implores him not to do it. Van Helsing ignores him and continues with the grisly task. Still unable to move, Jonathan hears the stake being hammered into Dracula. He calls for the authorities and says that Van Helsing just murdered the Count. Just then, Van Helsing comes down, bloody stake in hand. He says he did it for the right reasons. But they don't know Dracula was a vampire, and the courts will decide if Van Helsing was justified. Van Helsing is placed under arrest. Or as close as to that as he can be without any semblance of town government. As they walk out, a super white and pale Jonathan tells the maid to fetch a broom and sweep the floor in front of him. He tells her it's dust, and she obliges. With it gone, he takes off his cross pendant and throws it down. Next, he tells the maid to seal the room for official investigation. As he says this, we see his mouth now sports the telltale fangs of a vampire. He has his horse fetched and says he has much to do now. And with a creepy smile, Jonathan is off to spread the plague as a newly minted vampire. So we turn back to Richard Newby as Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht comes to an end. Newby, like myself, was all in on the final bits of the film. As he explains, there's a measure of dreamlike predestination in Herzog's film, not simply because it's a remake, but because Nosferatu's encounters with the Harkers is played with a kind of inevitability that supposes their respective deaths and rebirths are part of a larger story that has been happening across endless sands of time, as suggested by the film's final images. Now, as cool and dreamy as Newbie made it sound, not everyone was biting on the finale of this flick, however. In a review written for the summer of 79 issue of Cine Fantastique, Tim Lucas writes, The conclusion has Harker finally succumbing to vampiric infection, murmuring some nonsense about having much to do, and then riding off into the horizon much like Boris Karloff in Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. Here, though, it makes no sense. Dracula has just died of sunlight exposure, yet Disciple Harker already blue-faced and bat-toothed, rides a goddamned horse through its rays. Herzog jeopardizes his credibility for the sake of an illogical plot twist. Why preserve the creaky conventions of early vampire movies only to shatter them with the last-minute injection of 70s pessimism? So, you kind of see two, two sides to, to this movie. I fall on the side of Richard Newby. I loved this movie. As a diehard Murnau Nosferatu guy, Werner Herzog had a lot to live up to. I can safe, and I can safely say he did it. And then some. He was able to really build a sense of doom that built throughout the movie. Some may feel this movie is really slow or boring, 
but it's really anything but slow and boring. Everything Herzog commits to film is planned to perfection. It truly is a thing of beauty. Now, Jeff Andrew, in an article entitled Past Lives, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire, for the British Film Institute, writes, Eerily beautiful and remarkable in many respects, not least for the acting, notably the expressionist performances of Kinski and Isabella Johnny, but also that of Bruno Ganz, Nosferatu the Vampire is at once a tribute to Murnau's original and the golden age of German filmmaking, and amusing on the vampire myth and the gothic tradition, and its various divergences from its hallowed predecessor. It is also, perhaps inevitably I'd say, given that this is a Herzog film, a wry, haunting meditation on the human condition. Death, as Dracula reminds us, is not the worst thing that can befall us. Now, Roger Ebert loved the film, especially pointing out Herzog's casting of a Johnny, one of his master strokes in the film. He wrote that she is used here not only for her facial perfection, but for her curious quality of seeming to exist on an ethereal plane. As much as Ebert loved the movie, a fella named G Gary Arnold hated it. Together, they are the yin and yang of Nosferatu the Vampire Reviews. Truly two sides of the universe. Think I was overplaying his disdain? Gary Arnold, in his review, entitled Camp Campy Bats in Power, published on October 23, 1979, writes, Herzog has nothing of lasting value to offer the vampire tradition. His Nosferatu is, at best, unintentional, fitfully risable camp. With luck, it might be adopted by the Rocky Horror Picture Show crowd, and since 20th Century Fox distributes both films, a cult double bill is hilariously possible. I gotta call BS on that take. That is a ridiculous review in my humble opinion. As a guy with a silent film podcast, I'm not sure how much weight my opinion carries, but Gary Arnold is way off. What Herzog offers is a beautifully terrifying take on the Dracula mythos, while also staying true to his vision. While covering familiar territory, he really does make it his own. It's full of lasting value, and the fact that some 40 years later, this film still packs a punch pretty much proves Mr. Arnold wrong. Now, we'll leave the reviews with one last blurb from Richard Newby when he writes, Like Murnau, Herzog approached the material with awe. His film expands on a number of the visual and narrative themes in Mur of Murnau's film, resulting in what is arguably the greatest adaptation of Dracula. So, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest, or, in this case, not silent stars. This is a segment where we join our favorite vampiric real estate agents on the other side of the cemetery gates, the history, the art. The celebrity spectacle converge and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars that have entertained us so, so much. Nosferatu has remained the only film Gans made with Herzog, S.S. Prower explains, who used the aura of melancholy that made Gans such ideal casting as Hamlet and Kleist, Prince of Hamburg, to project in his Jonathan Harker a character more driven, complex, sick, and finally demonic than the rather simple-minded adventurer of Murnau's film. So, with that being said, 
we are going to take a look at Bruno Ganz. Bruno Ganz died from cancer at the age of 77 on February 16th, 2019, at his home in the village of Au in Wadenswil, Switzerland. The list of awards he received over his life and career would be way too long for this already long episode, but let's hit a few of the biggies before we vanish. 1973, he won Actor of the Year in German magazine Theater Haute. In 2006, he received the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany. 2010 saw him honored with a star on the Boulevard of the Stars in Berlin. In addition to many more acting and lifetime achievement awards he received throughout his life. He lays, was laid to rest in Rehaupt Cemetery in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, as this episode expels its final death rattles, we want to thank you for sharing this chilling, dialogue-filled adventure with us. We knew this could be a controversial pick in the, the lineup of the Golden Silent Films podcast, but if there was any movie worth breaking the sound barrier for, Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht was the perfect place to start. Did you enjoy our first sound feature? What are some of your favorite vampire films? Where should our personal Werner Herzog watch list go next? What scary silence did you watch for your Halloween scares this year? Let us know all of that and more at the various social media domains of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we are always ghoulishly skulking around on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about this frightening episode. What morbid movies, past or present, do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence, and apparently not-so-silence, is constantly expanding, and we need your input to plot out the future viewings as Season 2 finale approaches. You can do all of that at the Golden Silence cast on Instagram, and at Golden Silence one on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, do subscribe, do rate, do review. It helps us like crazy, and we love hearing your feedback. We super, super appreciate your awesome support and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make more and better episodes for all of you. All of that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And don't forget, avoid rats and vampires at all costs. And the silence are golden and the, tr and the talkies, they're just a fad. Now, let's leave this episode with one final story from Beverly Walker that ties this episode up in a nice little bow. Walker writes, As we returned to our lodgings after filming, I reflected upon the whole experience on Nosferatu. The obstacles had been so enormous that I had sometimes felt the film was cursed, and yet Herzog somehow prevailed. A comment made by Isabella Johnny some weeks earlier in Delft came to mind. We were discussing the many internal problems which were complicated by the refusal of the city to, pride, to provide even a modicum of cooperation. A Johnny, a perspicacious realist, finally shook her head. But the film won't be touched, she said. It's like a benediction. You can feel it pulling the film forward.